And to start us thinking about our passage, I'd like to cite something that Francis Schaeffer wrote. It's um, widely known. He says, What then shall we conclude but that as the Samaritan loved the wounded man, we as Christians are called upon to love all men as neighbors, loving them as ourselves. Second, he says that we are to love all our Christian brothers in a way that the world may observe. This means showing love to our brothers in the midst of our differences, great or small, loving our brothers when it costs us something, loving them even under times of tremendous emotional tension, loving in a way the world can see. Love and the unity it attests to is the mark that Christ gave Christians to wear before the world. Only with this mark may the world know that Christians are indeed Christians and that Jesus was sent by the Father. Why this mark? Why love? Why not special haircuts or special clothes or big crosses or tattoos? Why not our Bible knowledge? Why not our giving to the poor? Why not our missionary activity? Why not... Why not something else? Why make love the mark? And if you'll look in Matthew 26 at verse 30, today I'd like to show you why love must be the mark of those of us who follow Christ. In verse 30, um, it says, When they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. It's Thursday night in our story. We call it Maundy Thursday. It's, it's literally just hours from when Jesus goes to the cross on that good Friday morning. Jesus has just washed His disciples' feet, and together they've shared the Passover meal. And as, as Ben taught us last week, Jesus vested that meal with new meaning concerning His own body and blood shed for our deliverance from our sins. And by that act, He instituted the meal that we just shared together. But now it says they left that upper room where the foot washing and the supper had taken place, and they went to a place called um, the Mount of Olives. Let me show you on this map where they're talking about. Here is, here's Jerusalem, the old city. This is the temple, as you can see it here. And they're just right out here on the Mount of Olives, just across the valley, um, outside of town, very near. And it says that as they journeyed out that way, they, they finished their time of worship around the Passover meal um, with a hymn. And scholars think that this may have been the closing song of the traditional Passover celebration. And probably the way it would have played out would Jesus would have led in verse and the disciples would have responded with hallelujah in song. So that you've, you have Jesus leading the disciples in singing a hymn and and I think that means that Daniel Creswell is more like Jesus even than we thought, right? You have Jesus leading in song. But the fascinating thing to me is that this is just hours before Jesus' death, and what is he doing? He's leading his friends in worship. Um, this is how Jesus' followers face death, okay? with worship on our lips. Just, just like Jesus. Well, verse 31, it says that Jesus said 
to the disciples, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Well, now this, this is a sobering prediction. They go from singing together in worship to Jesus predicting that before that very night is over, the night where he washed their feet, the night where he, they shared the supper together, and the night that they sang the hymns, on that night, every last one of them would desert him, every one of the disciples. Within hours, they would desert him. And one of the things that helps, helps me realize just as we celebrated today, is that this supper, um, it's not reserved for the deserving. Um, because at that meal, every one of them was about to become a deserter of Jesus. And yet they were welcomed at that meal. This is a table for great sinners, even deserters, who don't want to be deserters anymore. And Jesus here quotes from the ancient prophet of the Old Testament, Zechariah, the 13th chapter, when he says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And Jesus there is identifying as that Messiah shepherd. He's saying, I am that shepherd. And the fascinating thing is he says, God is the striker. God is the one, according to Zechariah who does the striking, the horrible suffering, the agony that Jesus is about to experience, the betrayal and the desertion of the disciples, God is behind it all. He is the striker in order to bring about a far greater good, the good that's behind this table we just shared together. This is, this is how Jesus knows that it's going to happen. He's so confident that it must and will take place. Simply put, Jesus knows because the Bible tells him so. Okay. That's how he knows. Behind what's about to befall him, right down to the, to the striking of his hands with the nails, right down to the desertion of his closest friends, these things he knows must happen because God has spoken and predicted, predicted even deemed that it would be so. 500 years before, God had declared through the prophet Zechariah, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, why does Jesus tell his friends ahead of time that they're going to desert him? Is he trying to warn them? Is he trying to shame them? I think mostly he's trying to protect them from from not recovering from their inevitable epic failure. I think he's preparing them to be restored. That's why he doesn't just predict that he will be stricken, but it says he'll be raised. He promises them, I will be raised. This long prophesied striking is not the end. He will raise. He's promising them. But he also says something interesting, just a little phrase there. He says, I'll go before you to Galilee. What's, what's that about? Well, that's Galilee's home for the disciples. It's where they were going to go when they were so discouraged and defeated. And Jesus is saying to them, I will meet you there. Though you desert me, 
I will seek you out and meet you there. I like the way Matthew Henry put it long ago. He said, it's as though Jesus is saying, though you will forsake me, I will not forsake you. Though you fall, I will take care. You shall not fall finally. Jesus wants his disciples, okay, these faltering, unfaithful, deserting disciples to know, to have lingering inescapably in the back of their minds amongst the last words that he's going to speak to them, that he will not desert them. He will be waiting for them, for his deserting ones in Galilee. And I cannot help but think that Jesus wants to say the same thing to some of us today. Disciples who have failed and disappointed and even deserted Jesus, he wants to say to you this morning that he will never fail nor forsake you. He will always be there for you on the other side of your desertion. Jesus will not fail you. You may fail him, but he will not fail you. You may desert him, but he will not desert you. Paul puts it in these beautiful, unforgettable words. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He says, no, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He will not desert you. He will not. So remember, always remember, do not forget that the hope that is ours as Christians is not founded upon our commitment to Jesus, it is founded on Jesus' commitment to us. Okay. And so you need to remember that on your worst day, when you are the one who deserts, who scatters, when you feel like a total failure, when you feel wholly unworthy. Remember, there's not one thing in all creation, even your desertion, that will separate you from the love of Christ. Okay. He will never desert you. And so Jesus promised, after I'm raised, I go before you to Galilee. Now, as we might expect, Peter has something to say about this. Okay? Jesus has just predicted that Peter is going to fail him miserably. Peter does not take kindly to these words. And this is what he says. Peter answered him. Though they all fail away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And I love what Peter, I love Peter's saying. I love his, his fidelity to Christ, his willingness to to stand for Christ, but Peter's a lot like us. Um, he puts his foot in his mouth often, um, and like Peter, we're inclined to think that we are a little bit smarter, a little bit wiser, at least a little bit better people than Jesus thinks we are. Okay? And Peter gets soundly rebuked by Jesus, pointedly rebuked by Jesus here. 
for at least three attitudes that surface in his profession of faithfulness to Jesus. First of all, you see that Peter says, though all these other disciples are going to deny you, not me, Jesus. I'm the faithful one. Peter thinks he's exceptional. Okay? He thinks he's better than everybody else. Um, even though the rest of the disciples may scatter, not Peter. He's the rock. Okay? He's not going to fall. And we can fall into this Peter-like attitude. When we see somebody else stumble, we can look down on them and think, that was really dumb. I'd never do anything like that. And at that point, we sound an awful lot like that Pharisee who prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Peter is far from humble here. He does not think he is the chief of sinners. He thinks he's the least of sinners. He thinks he should be voted disciple most likely to succeed. Or at least disciple least likely to desert. That's Peter. And Jesus nails Peter for his exceptionalism. Peter also has, it's just a silly amount of self-confidence here. Peter, Peter reminds me of this guy. You recognize this guy? This guy here is juggling chainsaws, and this guy right here is walking forward. You remember the commercial? He says, uh, he says, give me one of those. I got this. I got this. Just give me one of those. He is, in the commercial, the prototypical overconfident guy because of his progressive insurance or something like that. Peter's like that guy. Peter thinks he can handle this. Okay? He's got this. Give me one of those, Jesus. I got this. He cannot. He does not. And that, that pride really leads Peter towards his third error, which is simply correcting Jesus. Okay? Not once, but twice Peter corrects Jesus here. Peter thinks that Jesus' assessment of him is off. He is a little bit better than Jesus thinks he is. Give me some cred, Jesus. Come on. I've been with you all this time. You know me. He's a little more faithful than Jesus thinks he is. He's a little stronger in the face of temptation than Jesus gives him credit for. And as a result, at least in this area, Peter thinks he's a little smarter than Jesus, which is a very dangerous thing to, give, to do. So Jesus singles Peter out for a remarkably detailed prophetic rebuke, and he says, Peter, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And so what does Peter do? In the face of such a detailed and personal rebuke, does he repent? Not exactly. For a second time, Peter knows better than Jesus, and Peter says to Jesus, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples are really happy to follow G or Peter, Peter's lead in this. Trust me, it's always, always a bad idea to correct Jesus. Okay? It's just really a bad idea to straighten Jesus out a little bit, just to enlighten Jesus, especially about his assessment of you. But that's essentially what we do whenever we choose sin, isn't it? We're saying we're just a little smarter than you in this case, Jesus. We found a better path. We found a happier way. We found a better, a better one for us. It's a bad idea. It's the worst of ideas. 
to correct Jesus. Martin Luther uh, penned these words in one of his hymns we sing, A Mighty Fortress. He said, Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He said, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And Peter is about to take the worst of falls. Jesus went with them from the Mount of Olives to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Now, um, the disciples are unconvinced that what Jesus has just predicted about them is going to happen. They follow Jesus now to a garden. Here's, here's that map again. They've gone from the Mount of Olives up here, right down here, um, to the Garden of Gethsemane, just outside the city, just, a, just across from the temple uh, there in Jerusalem. It's a place, evidently they frequented this place a lot because John tells us that's how Judas knew where to find them. John says, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew this place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Um, Jesus was often here at this place of prayer with his friends. And that's why Jesus has come to this place this night, to pray with his disciples and to be found by his betrayer. It's interesting, though. Jesus wants to spend his last really voluntary hour, his last discretionary time, he wants to spend praying with his disciples. He wants to be found praying with the disciples that are about to desert him. Jesus knows they are about to abandon him, and yet he still wants to be with him. This is why love, even love of those who do us wrong, is our mark. It's the mark of our master Jesus, and he is displaying it beautifully here in the garden for us to see. He is spending his last hours loving his unfaithful friends. Why would Jesus need to pray? Isn't he God? Well, probably lots of really deep reasons to think about that, but I think if we understand that God is one and yet he is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, we also understand that prayer is first about communion, about communing with the Father before it is getting something from the Father, then I think we understand why Jesus wanted to pray. On this night of all nights, the Son needs the nearness of His Father in prayer. In the garden, Jesus takes with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, And he began to be sorrowful and troubled, and he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Jesus evidently goes a little deeper in the garden. He takes just three of the remaining 11 disciples. Judas has departed to betray him. 
And he just picks three, Peter and the sons of Zebedee, James and John. Why these three? It's interesting, he picked these three another time when he went up on another mountain to pray, the Mount of Transfiguration. And they went up on that mountain, those three, and they saw Jesus literally glory glowing, his divine glory glowing through him. And they experienced his deity in a way that's really remarkable. Now Jesus invites the same three again to come with him, but now they're going to experience his humanity in one of its clearest representations. It may be that these three are the best ones for praying. Both times he set them aside and went there, he took them to pray. It may also be that they really needed to be there, these three. Because you remember what James and John said when Jesus said, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? They said, yeah, boy, we're in. We are the exceptional ones. We can do it. Let us sit at your right hand and your left. And Peter, of course, we just heard him saying that he would not deny when he was faced with this suffering. Um, I think all of those things have merit as to why Jesus is pulling these three apart. But I, I kind of wonder, too, if these just weren't his best friends on earth and Jesus wanted to be with praying friends when he was in his darkest hour. I think it was really, really dark for Jesus. It says he began to be sorrowed Sorrowful and troubled. And different Bibles and translators have rendered that a variety of ways. Depressed and confused. Grieved and agitated. Anguished and dismayed. Saddened and anguished. One of them is interesting. Depressed and confused. Jesus felt depressed. Jesus felt confused. Isn't that wrong? You aren't supposed to feel that way, are you? Especially if you're Jesus, you're not supposed to feel that way. Um, Jesus, it helps to remember that he became one of us. This is not wrong. This is human. He didn't become a robot. He didn't become Superman. He emptied himself took on our likeness, our form, and here in His suffering, we see it on display, His humanity on display, perhaps like no other place, Jesus began to be sorrowed and troubled. I wonder if the disciples could pick up on that if Jesus was weeping in this garden. And He bore a sorrow, He said, that felt like it would kill Him. One writer paraphrased it as Jesus saying, I feel so bad I could die. That's like, that sounds like being depressed to me. But Jesus did what you and I must do when we are depressed and anguished and we feel like the the world is going to crush the life out of us. We must do like he, we must draw on praying friends to be with us. And we must pray too. Following this simple example of Jesus can make a world of difference in your darkest hours. Well, going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, 
not as I will, but as you will. Even Jesus' posture belies his agony. He is on his face, on the ground, pleading with the Father that the cup might be taken from him. The cup is a picture of God's wrath and judgment that Jesus would drink to the full on the cross. And it would be for the first time ever that the Father and the Son would be separated. And Jesus says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Is this sin? Is it sin to ask the Father, for the Son to plead with the Father to change His plan, to spare Him this suffering? John Calvin addressed this question, not by minimizing Christ's struggle, but by recognizing that Honesty in prayer that leads to submission to the Father's will is hardly sin. It's the greatest of temptations, but it's not sin to struggle. So the Son is struggling with the suffering the Father's will entails, just like we do. Just like when the Father leads us into suffering and we struggle, And yet the Son here chooses to trust and to obey, and He will be with you as you choose similarly to trust and to obey, even in your darkest hour. Verse 40, Jesus came back to the disciples, and He found them sleeping, these three. And He said specifically to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour? Exceptional Peter? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh, it is weak. And I think, it sounds like the disciples, these three, they really, really want to be there for Jesus. They are eager, they are willing, but their eyes are too heavy. And you know what this is like. I've watched you struggle with this right here in this room on Sunday morning. You know, you want to stay awake and your eyes are too heavy. Okay. It happens. Luke says that they were exhausted from their sorrow and it seems like they were um, evidently finally understanding what Jesus' predictions of his death really meant, that he really was about to die. And Jesus here, though, does call them to an hour of prayer. And it's not just for his sake though it is for that, as we've already talked about, but for their own sake, it would seem here that extended times of prayer in the darkest hours have a great power to safeguard our heart from the temptations that would ensnare us. Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And yet the disciples failed to watch. They couldn't watch and pray for even one hour. They were too weak. Of course, this begs the question, Have you ever spent an hour in prayer? Have you done it recently? Is this how you respond to your dark hours, your deep valleys, your hard places? Here once again, beautifully, we find Jesus in his darkest hour, concerned that his soon-to-be unfaithful friends would be safe from temptation. What, What wondrous love this is that Jesus at his lowest point, is concerned for the well-being of his friends. This is why love is our mark, because it marks Jesus. 
And so for a second time, Jesus left them now, and He goes away and He prays, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, Your will be done. So Jesus withdraws a distance from the three again to pray alone, and He petitions God again, similar to what He did before, but there's a very small, very significant change this time. His petition changes from if it is possible to if it is not possible. From let this cup pass to if this cup cannot pass. And Dale Bruner writes about this. He says, in this second prayer, Jesus does not ask for the cup's removal. It's as if Jesus is saying, Father, I'm beginning to think that you don't want that cup to go away except by one route, my drinking it. And we don't know what happened for Jesus, why he changed from his first bout of prayer to this second one. It's probably not his encounter with the sleeping disciples. The only clue we have is that it comes to him from his time in prayer. That Jesus, it would seem, benefits from prayer even as he urged his disciples to. It protects him from the temptation that he is facing. Extended prayer fortifies the soul from temptation, even in those dark hours. And I know some of you are thinking, but I pray when I'm tempted, and I still sin. Now, those prayers are very important, but what Jesus is calling us to here are not merely arrow prayers, but extended times of prayer, hour of prayer, drawing near to the Father. Remember, prayer is about communing before it's ever about getting. It's about drawing near before it's about receiving from. There is a power to fight temptation that comes from taking time just to draw near to God. Doesn't that make sense? That if you draw near in prayer to the Holy One who loves us, that that would shake temptation's grip on us? But these three, they're struggling to pray. Jesus comes back after his second round of prayer, and he finds them sleeping again, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Three times now, Jesus has sought the Father in prayer. Three times now, he has said, not your will or not my will, but yours. And it seems like now for the third time, he finds the disciples sleeping again. Jesus here is, is set up for a contrast with his disciples. They fail to pray and fail to trust. He chooses to pray and he will trust even unto death. Prayer fortifies the soul against temptation. So Jesus came to the disciples after that third season of prayer, and evidently he finds them asleep again, and he says, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer, he is at hand. It's been noted that three times Peter slept instead of praying. And three times that very night, Peter would deny Christ 
instead of following. Dale Bruner says something that our church needs to hear. He says, these three are at that time, perhaps only after Jesus, the three most devoted persons on the face of the earth. They are at least the three best instructed in the will of God. He says, but this shows how far even a fine education goes in a crisis. Please don't confuse making the dean's list at seminary with having a robust prayer life. You can master Hebrew and fall into temptation if you have not come to the master in prayer. You must. I know that you students are busy, but you must find time to pray or you will be vulnerable. Jesus says, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. And the plan here is now, as Jesus affirms for the third time his commitment to do the Father's will no matter what, the plan is inexorably set in motion. Jesus is in full submission to the will of the Father. And so on this Thursday night, here in this garden, we find Jesus sorrowful unto death, and seeking strength and solace in prayer with his friends and with the Father. When he is suffering most, we see that Jesus continues to be concerned for his friends, the very ones who are about to desert him when he needed him most. Jesus loves them. When we fail him, he loves us still. He will meet us in Galilee on the other side of our desertion. He is faithful when all others are not. He chooses to drink the cup so that we will not have to. In that sense, the cup did pass from him. It did go away, at least for us. Paul, as a result of Jesus drinking the cup, writes this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus drank it all. He drank it for them and for us, knowing that we would be unfaithful and deserting. This is love, and this is why it has to be our mark. Would you pray with me, please? Good Jesus, fountain of love, fill us with your love. Absorb us into your love. Compass us with your love that we may see all things in the light of your love. Receive all things as the token of your love. Speak of all things in words breathing of your love. Win through your love others for your love. Be kindled day by day with a new glow of your love until we be fitted to enter into your everlasting love. To adore your love, and love to adore Thee, our God and all. Even so come, O Lord Jesus. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a great and blessed week.